From Glitch HQ on Riverside Avenue in translated topographic Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Martha McGarry, and I make nice games. I'm not Stephen McGregor, and I don't make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, and I do make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are designing for localization and navigation. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Oh, good timing this time. (laughs) (laughs) This time. Thanks, not Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you really rush through it. Okay, so topic well, one, I'm not Stephen. Hi. Uh-huh. Hi, Dale Let's LaCroix. address that topic immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's our social media manager, Dale LaCroix. Yeah, I only manage uh, Twitter because that's what I am good at so far because Twitter well. is a lot of uh, retweeting things <laughs> that I can do. <laughs> Discord, I am trying as of last night. <laughs> I changed my picture last night, so that was a That was a huge feat. (laughs) Nice. So not only are you doing our tweets for us, and that's been like a godsend, (laughs) uh, but you're also a member of the Evil Games Club. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) That's true. Which uh, we haven't done an Evil Games Club episode in a while. Well, we have, but um, we lost lost it. Yeah, we did lose it. Yeah, that was... Those technical difficulties. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know what's going on. I think I rubbed my feet on the carpet a whole lot and then tried to record an episode and uh, static electricity was just popping off me uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like an evil thing to do right oh yeah definitely it well, was just your evil aura coming through the microphones <laughs> listeners should just be warned that like you know you're in for a little bit of self-sabotage this episode I think, right possibly <laughs> i did mess up the intro the first time <laughs> oh my Okay, so I'm I'm not Stephen, and the reason I'm not Stephen is Stephen's not here because he's in Seattle mm-hmm. for Halloween. So if you are one of our listeners in Seattle in our game dev community, which there is a big game dev community in Seattle, um, and you see a man, I'm assuming dressed like Kirby, <laughs> that might be Stephen. I'm just kidding. You would hear you would hear Stephen, and then you would see a man dressed like right. Kirby. If, if you're within four blocks of Stephen's voice, you'll know it. <laughs> <laughs> like I recognize that voice. <laughs> yeah, I just then I just wanted to talk about popular Halloween costumes from video games this year because I have been on the Twitter and everybody is uh, is posting their Halloween costumes. Yeah, <laughs> and kids are really cute in Halloween costumes, especially <laughs> like babies because they don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I saw a woman dressed as a hamburger menu. It was hilarious. Like the three lines hamburger. Three lines, menu? yeah. And then, the, and then from her sleeve, she 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 hung all the like menu options. So so <laughs> when she amazing. when she puts out her arm, then there's a bunch of things like home and like contact info and yeah. That's you see, awesome. Yeah, you've gone the Twitter, but yeah, it was pretty awesome. I mean, not video game, but technically. I mean, tech. yeah, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> there's I mean, hamburger menus in video games. Yeah. So that one was pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. There were a lot of um, creepers from Minecraft this year among the children children that came to uh, Dylan's parents' place. They do like this huge Halloween thing, block off the street and everything. And so we got, they got like a thousand kids at least uh-huh. that came to the door because they had more than a thousand pieces of candy. <laughs> uh, and um, 
yeah, so lots of creepers. Uh, trying to think if there's any more video game people that I noticed a lot. There were a lot of like anime people and a lot of Disney people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of scary people with like like masks and and choppy things. <laughs> <laughs> Just generally Which scary. could be from a, a horror video game. I don't know. I don't yeah. play those. <laughs> yeah. Well, mostly all I ever all I saw was on Twitter because uh, Dale and I live in a high rise and with in a building full of retirees and law students. So uh, there's not a lot of kids uh, dropping by for candy on Halloween. So mostly on Twitter, I did see this great thing. Uh, Bill Trinan from Nintendo uh, posted a thing said, "Hey, where are all the Nintendo characters at?" Just kind of like as a, a dare or something like. And then immediately below it in my timeline was a woman dressed as Waluigi. Wow! <laughs> like, like, and I'm like, okay, great, <laughs> that's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there were a bunch of goose, very good goose Oh costumes. my gosh, so <laughs> many gooses. There were sexy gooses and family of gooses and then people dressed as like the farmer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With like like the puppets gooses. That's yeah. awesome. There's a good one where someone was, was dressed as the gardener and then had the, the sign above their head, like looking, looking for keys. And then on their back, they had a little like a stuffed goose holding the keys and then they walked around their party, like confused and like turning around. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Good, good gooses. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, listeners are hearing this a couple weeks after Halloween now, but there's one more Halloween topic, which is Luigi's Mansion 3 came out. And I'm very excited about it. I played a little bit of it and then I uh, got wrapped up in other work. So I don't yeah. know, I mean, I don't know how much yeah. I'm going to be able to devote, but I like it a lot. You made me come out to the living room to watch me under promises that he would say, he would peek around doors and go, Mario <laughs> and he did yeah that game starts out really funny like you you are on a like a coach bus like with the whole like you know Mushroom Kingdom family for some reason like Princess Peach doesn't have a fancy uh, conveyance it's just in like a a rented bus and, and, and Toad and, is driving yeah why did they make the shortest person drive the bus <laughs> he can't see over the steering wheel <laughs> there's just so much weird stuff with that game that is like it, it makes me feel kind of it, it's like unpolished in a weird way which uh, all the I mean it's a gorgeous game uh, graphically it's very very well made but there are a lot of things in it that just feel a little weird in a way that almost like first drafty kind of and Uh-oh. which I'm, I have no problem with. It just made me think like, oh, I shouldn't be so worried <laughs> about the like the little things in my game that I'm desperate to like make look professional because like a Mario game can just have kind of like so-so UI <laughs> and like uh, like this, you know, a strange story where they pull up to a luxurious mansion, but there's no parking lot like like little things that like aren't really a big deal. But like when you're making things, you get really wrapped up in like, you know, this, I feel like whenever I see that in a bigger game, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to be fine, <laughs> you know? And I, but and no one's commented on any of this stuff in Luigi's Mansion because it really isn't matter and because it does look so great. But there are just a couple of things where I'm like, uh, it's a weird choice or like they didn't think about it very hard, I guess. And that's fine. I don't know. Like the doors open and the doors are really thick in this game, like the art style. Oh, yeah. They're like half a foot wide. And you can see the the latch, right? The mechanism of the door handle. And you and because everything is so big and cartoony, you see Luigi open the door handle and you see the door handle go back to normal. But the little peg in the door, which is directly in front of the camera, is just a texture. 
Uh, and which is fine. And there's nothing wrong with that, really. But like, if I'm a triple A game and I'm swinging a door past a camera very, very slowly with a really thick door and you can see that mechanism and you see Luigi engaging the mechanism, but nothing happens like no one cares. Like no one cares. And I, I just feel like I, I, well, I can do it a lot more than I think I can, I guess. They shouldn't have even put that texture there. Like no one would have questioned <laughs> it if it was just well, that's the thing. The blank. door is so thick that it would be weird if they didn't have something there. Uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, but then they just like, stopped at that. They didn't go any like further. If, if these doors are so big, it's is if the door was like 20 feet tall and like almost as thick as you're like the width of your body. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> let me push open this door. <laughs> this is like an executive C-suite like... Uh-huh. Mansion. Yeah. <laughs> Scale is very weird. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Luigi's taller than Mario and Peach is taller than both of them. And Peach still only comes up to a third of the height of these doors. So like Mar and there's like there's like desks and tables and stuff. Like the, in the early scene, Mario is like looking at a table full of like treats and it's like, oh, I want I want a piece of cake. And um <laughs> and he is like his his eye line is below the height of this like side table. And it's just like the scale in Mario games has never made any sense. And we just let it, we just let it slide. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But another game that came out uh, or is coming out, it'll be out by the time you hear this, uh, Death Stranding. All the reviews just came out from where we're sitting. Yeah, the and, embargo. And um, the, 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 the discourse is shaping up now. And I'm sure it'll be further along by the time you hear this. But the thing I've noticed is like reviewers are working very, very hard to not be the first one to say, you know, this game isn't that great. <laughs> they're all they're all talking about how like boring it is, but they're like, but you know, it's the it's a vision of one man who is like mm. an auteur, and it's like, no, maybe it's just like maybe it's just an okay game, and not the the weird masterpiece that it was promised. And it's okay just to I think people just don't want to be seen not getting it, you know. Um, I don't know. Mm. Yeah weird i i've not, i mean i was never looking forward to that game so it's easy for me to to look at all that and form my opinion but yeah i mean i think it looks interesting in mm-hmm. a like what <laughs> sort of way yeah um but yeah we'll see if i actually get it or not mm-hmm. yeah actually of, of the regular hosts in the clubhouse you'd be the most likely to probably play it i think yeah because i'm the only one who likes shooting things <laughs> <laughs> well it's not there's not it, there's not a lot of uh, that's one of the things reviewers noted is it's not very actiony at all oh interesting um, there's very few uh battles and uh most of the weapons are non-lethal and it's mo- and you're not a very powerful character and so that is because so much of it feels like metal gear in a lot of ways it's it surprised a lot of reviewers how little of those mechanics are are huh. in it now that's super interesting to me mm-hmm. yeah. i still man it just it's really frustrating that the female characters in that game are still like mother and yeah. whisper or something like that. Like all like, I don't know. Very. Yeah. Ultimately that's, <laughs> that's the source of my criticism of any, uh, um, Kojima project is like, he, I don't want, I just don't want to hear his stories. I'm just not interested. And, <laughs> and when people talk about how like weird it is, I'm like, it's not that weird. It's just kind of dumb. Like I'm like, it's not, people give it way too much credit for being out there, but it's like, no, no, he's just made a lot of successful games in the past 30 years, so he can do whatever he wants. So whatever he wants is just, you know, is quote unquote weird. But like, it doesn't seem that interesting to me. And yeah, it, it seems very regressive and old fashioned. And um, he's sort of the Quentin Tarantino of game makers to throw another beloved figure under the bus where it's like, 
you know, says a lot, but doesn't really say anything, I guess, mm. is sort of my general opinion of, mm-hmm. you know, address your letters uh, this way. <laughs> feedback. <on this>. Yeah, <laughs> feedback, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because I actually am here. I'm curious to, to hear like a thoughtful defense uh, to maybe put a loaded phrase on it of, of Kojima's work, because like Metal Gear as a series is, is, a, is anti-war. That's sort of its main thing. But I can't think of any player who walked away with that. It, mm-hmm. it, with those, with the, the with, with that as an impression, and I don't think they do a good job of being that. I think it's, it's sort of, and so uh, that's why I'm sort of critical. Is like I'm not sure how much he and his works has actually contributed to the form, um, but although mechanically and like uh, structurally, like there, there's a lot more credit that's due him that I'm not giving him. But um, because he fashions himself as a as a as a storyteller. Um, uh, that's that's the basis on which I'm skeptical. I think. Yeah. I mean, I maybe we have to do a like nice games club debate where one of us has to play devil, devil's advocate yeah. and really defend Kojima. <laughs> well, we should. We should. Have, we should, I mean, if we did that, we should have somebody who really has some has you know actual defense or uh, you know so, sees something I don't see. You know, um, because I think you and I both react that way. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're going to treat your women characters that way, like, I'm not really interested in anything else you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to crawl back pretty hard from that to, for me to be interested again, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in more not nice news. In more not nice news. We have some not nice sports news. <laughs> well, um, more though, don't bum us out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't make up the stories. I just report them. <laughs> um, so a lot of you read Kotaku, uh, which is a video game website, but they also are in a group of websites that all go together. Um, formerly and- Gawker Media, formerly Gizmodo Media Group, and now Geo Media. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, because they've been sold off so many times. Uh, and in the most recent... Um, getting bought out by people it got bought out by people who don't really like the things they bought it seems like um, and one of the other publications that's part of this group is called Deadspin and they're about sports mostly kind of <laughs> or were about sports mostly <laughs> yes <laughs> um, and uh, basically no one works at Deadspin anymore because the, the management was total dicks and <laughs> <laughs> language yeah i was gonna say whoa steven's we, not here so yeah are, are we nice games club or not <laughs> well they aren't very nice people yeah well this all sort of stem this is a private equity group that that owns this range of publications that are all essentially profitable sort of although univision had a hard time making money with them i guess um and yeah just didn't understand what made their readers loyal but also uh, it's a strategy that's been used elsewhere at publications like Forbes, and uh, which I'm sure you've all Googled the topic and saw a Forbes article. Like, why is Forbes writing about this? Mm-hmm. You click it, and it's all just, it's all clickbait. It's all badly written, badly sourced, uh, because it's it's from a contributor network, and it's meant to drive clicks and ad revenue. And uh, Newsweek is very similar. Newsweek, a very f- a well-respected, famous name in, in news and reporting uh, in the 20th century is now just clickbait. It, like, it's a total, like, you know, content farm. And, um, and those have been successful operations for like Forbes has never been more successful than it is now, even though it's been never been less respected. And so if that's your motivation, then like that's your motivation. And that is essentially the direction that this equity group was investigating 
And any little step they made towards making that welcome to them was badly received by the fiercely independent editorial staff yes. of these verticals because it is a total wrong fit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like these these places have these uh, websites have such like the reason people go to them is because they have really cool articles and really do in depth journalism on a lot of different topics. Like um, Deadspin not only did sports stuff, but they talked about like they went after other other sports publications and sports organizations that were doing shady stuff. And they talked about, um, they did reporting on their own shady stuff that was happening at their company and, um, and just uh, funny things about things that were just random that were really great. And, uh, the people running it just didn't understand that. Like that's, if you're going to go make a clickbaity thing, go make a clickbaity thing. Don't come and, try to make a place that people actually like into a clickbaity thing for mm -hmm. no reason. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so all the uh, reporters and et cetera agreed and quit, <laughs> basically. Yeah, so the, it's still out in operation, but now it's just uh, freelancers um, you know, filling in their last assignments and then it has such a, um, a, a reputation now that it's hard to see what will happen. And as it relates to video game news, uh, the uh, folks over at Kotaku... Uh, haven't experienced the same shakeup, but uh, there's a lot of rumblings on Twitter. They're all being like, "Thanks for your concern. We're doing okay today." <laughs> like, um, but this happened before with uh, with uh, uh, Gawker Media. Even before Gawker itself was sued out of existence, um, the company always had uh, trouble like uh, making money, like and you know being sustainable. And it's gone through a number of hands that have all tried different things that are were all bad ideas, but the the, I guess the one thing to think about is like that no one's come up with the exact way to make it sustainable. Like, so, um, you know, journalism is not um, a, um, you know, it's not a, a, a grant of a charity um, by society. It, it does need to be a, 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 a going concern. Otherwise, it would be state run and that has its own problems. Uh -huh. So it's, um, but no one has done a good job <laughs> of figuring it out. Um, and as we in the clubhouse is, you know, we're not journalism, but we're, I wouldn't, we're not even the next best thing, but we're adjacent. So it's, it's, it does concern me that, you know, um, that it's harder and harder for, um, people to do work that it has actual value. So one way that you can make your publication be relevant and cool to people <laughs> who aren't necessarily from the place you're from. I can is, be cool, Martha. It's <laughs> never occurred to me before. <laughs> is to localize your coverage to, or your game, uh -huh. or whatever you're making, to the audience that you want to um, bring it to. Yeah, so this is my topic. Um, uh, I've talked about localization on the show before be, uh, in the process of doing it for Widget Satchel. Um, but um, I want to talk about designing for localization. So um, implementation is its own ball of wax. And, uh, you know, maybe I can do that, really get into the postmortem on how I built that um, uh, more fully than I have in the past. But I want to talk about like the considerations you have when you're actually doing it. Because I think a lot of people think of it just like things like other accessibility features or difficulty modes or a lot of things, or even like sound effects or rumble, like the things you just leave till the end to solve, right? And so mm -hmm. one of the things that benefited Widget Satchel uh, thus far 
is that um, as soon as I started making anything that had text in it, I was like, you know what, I'm going to figure out how to make this localizable. Even though at that time, I had no designs on hiring translators. I'm like, I'm just going to, I wanted to learn how it would work and also wanted to think about it from the start. And so that's been a benefit to me, um, which isn't to say that it's ever too late to think about this. Or, But mm-hmm. again, that goes into implementation. But when you're thinking about uh, designing for it, a lot of it comes from like how you actually write your copy and what your what your game in your in your own local language is going to be before it's translated. Um, a lot of people, especially people who make like puzzle games, they tend to uh, try to get around a lot of this by just having as little text as possible, um, and that is a useful strategy. But it does require more effort um, uh, on uh, you know uh, iconography and making sure mm-hmm. that you 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 have signposting and also your game design is such that if it needs text to explain it, then you have two choices: you either use text to explain it, or maybe you change the design, right? And that's sort of tough. I think a lot of times when we come up with mechanics, we think of like um, what reason is it for it to be this way, and we never we very rarely consider. Uh, like legibility, like literal legibility um, to be uh, worth like changing or dropping a feature for. But um, I think it's, it's at least as a thought experiment, it's worth thinking about like, um, you know, how important is it to make this, this uh, simple if you are deciding to go that route of as little text as possible. Um, the, on the flip side of that is something that I did on Widget Satchel, which was when I started um, working with translators to actually do the translation, um, it occurred to me that like, well, I'm not going to have access to these people forever, right? So mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I've got um, everything they're going to need to translate, uh, even if I don't know if I need it, right? So, oh. um, you know, uh, and, you know, if you're in the process of developing your game, um, you may not know all what all your menu options are going to be. Well, uh, two things. One, you should actually be thinking about that earlier than you think you're going to, right? Like about, you know, are you going to have separate audio uh, sliders for audio and video and a separate one for master audio? If so, what are you going to call it? Are you going to have a a thing that pops up and says mute when you turn it all the way to zero? Because you need that word translated. Like all of those things, you want to think about that early. Um, And it, it actually sort of helps to sort of take a break from the game and do a lot of planning around that stuff. Like just um, uh, and and overthink it a little bit and over, uh, have to, more than you think you're going to need. Um, you know, don't go so crazy as to waste a lot of time on it, but um, more than you expect. So there's a balance. But um, if you're not sure if you're going to have this this menu option, or you're not sure if you're going to have this bit of text, do it. If you have a uh, dialogue in a scene, and um, you know, a shorter is always better for uh, you know uh, you want to trim and edit, of course. But if you have you know, uh, two versions of this line, you're not sure which one are you going to use and you don't want to make that decision yet, then, you know, translate them both. Like have them mm-hmm. both as part of your document. Um, find a way to, 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 make, to, to notate it so that you can, so it's there for you six months from now when, well, you, yeah. when the, the contract is up with your, your translator and you're like, you know, uh, oh man, I just needed that one word and I forgot <laughs> to include it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, when you're writing your script, there's a a couple of things that you need to think about when you think about how it's going to appear in other languages. And a lot of it, these are all just, um, pitfalls. So character names is a big one. Um, one of the things in Widget Satchel that was trouble from start, right? Like this is something that we came up with in the jam that, um, if I had been thinking about localization, then I might not have made this decision. Um, but, all of the names in Widget Satchel, all the character names, the NPCs that you encounter, are all named for the power-up that you, for a power-up that you get in the game, 
right? Okay. So there's there's five power-ups and uh, four characters, and then the fifth one is just the wrench. But the other four are sort of own, they're like the they're, they're owned, owned by, by those characters. Character. Yeah. So we you know we have uh, Maggie's net, which is a, a, a magnet glove, and it's a pun, right? Maggie's net, and so uh, we all oh. of them are like that. So oh, how does that <laughs> translate to anything? Exactly right. So. You know, I've got I got the translation back that um, which was uh, for okay. So we have a character named Auntie in the game, and uh, um, her uh, the power up you get from her is the an- uh, Auntie's grav sled. So it's an anti grav sled, right? So that's that's a it's a joke. <laughs> so I got I got a translation back that was um, the uh, anti gravity of Auntie, like, and it was just like okay, the joke's not there anymore, right? Uh-huh. And um. There's no grav sled is a made up word, right? Yeah. Um, and so these are all pitfalls you're going to have to face if you make choices like we made. But um, so what did you end up calling the anti grav sled translated translated back? So this is a case of where um, it, um, it was um, uh, rather than calling it a grav sled because w- so what it is in the game is it's it's a it's a a, a plate that you attach to your satchel to to lighten it. So it uh-huh. is you know. Uh, it's like an anti-grav uh, uh, thing. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, we just had a, have a different name for it. So you lose the pun, um, but um, we just called it something else, right? And it's, it's, does it still belong to auntie? It does, yeah. Oh, okay. Because that's, the, that's, the, that's important, right? So you have to decide which is more important to you. Like if, if, you have, uh, if you have many reasons for calling a thing a thing, right, then you have to decide which is more important. And maybe you find some other hook in this other language and this is also where you give your translator some creative license to come up with what those hooks are. Um, but it's very difficult. Now, on the other hand, um, so that's, uh, I'm talking a lot about the Spanish translation, uh, where, where we had some difficulty with that. Um, but also the Japanese translation that we had done um, has different problems in that a lot of the proper nouns are transliterated. So they are, they're replaced with Japanese characters, but they sound roughly the same. Right as they do in English, okay, and so they become which is, which is how Mario is because it's like Super Mario, right? Yes, and th- there's a long tradition in Japanese media of just using English um, uh, in in ways that are not exact. It's everyone does know English in Japan more or less, mm-hmm. but that is not. Uh, but there's but even people who don't know enough English in this context. Uh-huh. It's it's sort of interesting. Um, but, um, the, the problem is that, okay, great. So we don't have to actually change any of the character names, but they no longer, they've, they're now divorced of their meaning mm-hmm. or are they? Because there's enough because English there's phrases that are familiar. And so it, it's a, it's a different issue that yeah. you sort of face. So, um, when you're writing your original text, um, there's two ways you can go about it. You can either just like throw caution to the wind and then deal with all these problems later. And uh, that's not a bad way to do it. Right. Like you don't want to be just like second guessing every choice you make or file down all the edges. Um, Mm -hmm. And as someone who is like, I really appreciate the structure of a sentence. And so um, and English has a very unique ability to to like string together a bunch of nonsense and still work. And so I would say that's true. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it has most nonsense. Well, it's because it's sourced from so many different languages. So it Mm -hmm. borrows a lot of different rules. Like grammar rules are a lot different. Like the syntax of a sentence is, is a certain way based on the words that are in it, depending on which language they were borrowed from. And so that is a, that's an interesting uh, facet Mm -hmm. of English that you can use as a poet, you can use it. Right. Yeah. But other languages, they have different, you know, lineage. And so they work differently and they won't, you know, and so you have to kind of just accept that, right? Um, or you can work around it, or you can, and it really depends. So if you have text that's like 
uh, um, a character speaking and you have them speaking in a certain cadence, a certain way, then what you need to do is you need to explain to your translators exactly what you're trying to accomplish because then they, in their translation, can make sure that whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, they can accomplish it too. Um, and that comes down to like trust. So that's when you're talking about like who you're actually going to get to work on these things. Um, so you can hire a service, right? There's companies that, that do this. There's uh, You can go to like a one-stop shop that will uh, translate your work into as many languages as they offer, right? Dozens. And, and that's great. It's also very expensive. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did some pricing on that and it was uh, not great. So it was in the thousands per language, um, which, you know, when you think about like someone's time and what their time is worth, it's not that outrageous. But in terms of like what you're budgeting for your video game project, if you're an indie, um, it can be kind of crazy. Yeah, um, especially when you add language upon language upon language upon language, then you're like, yes. oh, that's the total. And suddenly your shopping bill is very, very high. Yes, yeah. and <laughs> it's hard to know the real value of it. Like how much more sales am I going to get in a world that speaks mostly, that will have been buying English language games. Um, and so it's, it's, really, it's hard to pull the trigger on something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the advantage you have with something like that, if you can afford it, um, is uh, that it, you deal with one client, right? one, or you are the client, you deal with one uh, a vendor. And um, that can be extremely useful because then all of your notes, all of your content, that can be filtered through them. And then one of the services that they then provide is working with all the individual translators. Yeah, you have one project manager who yeah. then deals with each translator and knows your project. Yes. Versus it, your time spent each time. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, um, you know, the it, it becomes exponentially more complicated. And we have to do, especially, there's nothing worse in game dev than dealing with the same thing twice. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, we're, <laughs> we're all, we all optimize. So the the idea of like having to, to explain what you meant by this pun. <laughs> to six different people you know <laughs> like let someone else explain it to six different people i guess if possible now you know there's a middleman there so there's a Ima- another. imagine that being your job what do you do well <laughs> i explain puns well that's the thing too is that somebody who has expertise <laughs> in that but kind of communication, communication. is incredibly yeah. valuable right yeah, and you're and not the expert in that very good at explaining puns yeah absolutely um so that's really useful of course you know if you know the language you can do it yourself. Um, that is, of course, an excellent solution. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys about your opinion on, because I don't have really, I don't have an opinion, but it's something to think about, is uh, let's say you sort of know a language, right? Like, mm. I sort of know French, uh, right? I know, like, Martha, you are you know Finnish, but you don't, you don't describe yourself as fluent, uh, right? No. <laughs> and, I, and I know probably half as much French, probably less. Um, I was almost fluent. Yeah, at one, point, at one point, I could understand what people were saying to me in Finland, but I couldn't respond. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, at a certain point, you have to say like, okay, well, that is a detriment, right? Because mm-hmm. you're going to not, you know, you, you have to use, you have to lean on trans, like Google Translate and then, you know, just yeah. to get like vocab, right? But at the same time, your familiarity with the original text might make up for that, uh-huh. right? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. What do you think? Like, is it... Um, do you trust yourself to do that because you know, uh, you know the original text yes. better, or um, and what's the threshold for that? Like, how well do you feel, or is it really just a level of comfort? Like, don't do it if you're not comfortable, regardless of the facts of the, the matter. Yeah, I would have to get someone to check my work, mm-hmm. especially now because mm-hmm. I've forgotten so much, so many things. But even back when I was actively like practicing and learning and uh-huh. stuff, I would have had 
like taking it to my professor or whatever and be like, hey, can you check this and make sure I'm using the right? Because like even when you look stuff up in a dictionary or something, you can get the wrong meaning, sub meaning of the word or yeah. like don't know that, oh, you know, in if you put this word in, you know, Finnish urban dictionary, it would mean something real dirty or something. You know what I oh, mean? Yeah. Like, like it's like slang things that you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That you would not, uh, never know. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like the the just contextual like you don't know like unless you've been playing Finnish video games what the normal word for the start button is or what it's called when you when you you have the volume all the way down is it called silent or is it called mute Oh right yeah yeah so that was that's interesting because one of the things that can very much happen is that these video game vocab terms can be internationalized. Mm-hmm. Um, I had I was looking for the phrase game over in French. Um, I, I translated the French copy for our store page. Uh, we don't have a French translator yet. So, uh, But we, to sell in Canada and France uh-huh. on, on certain platforms, you do need to have that, that copy translated or else they will not accept it. Um, they don't care if it's good. <laughs> so that, help, that helps a little bit. Um, and it's not, part, it's not the game itself. So I felt a little more comfortable doing that myself um not super comfortable but a little bit comfortable and so i was looking up the phrase game over because in the description for widget satchel we say like oh sprocket can't get hurt and there's no quote game over because that's one of the features of the game and um, uh, every time i i try to uh when i would auto translate that phrase it would always come back as quote game over and i was like okay so that's just not maybe it doesn't handle things in quotes and and you know and what i would do for a google translate for if i didn't quite know the structure of a sentence is i would uh, write the sentence in four different ways and translate it those times. And then I would start to, Oh, right. That's how it works. And so it'd get a little bit mm-hmm. of my French back, but um, looking over and over and then it's like, okay, I'm just going to search online for video game terms because someone's written these down, right? Because we've all had the same problem. Like why reinvent the wheel? And um, uh, what I've learned and like, I'm still not totally certain on this is yeah, you can just use game over. People know what game over means. That said in French, there is, a couple of phrases that have been used, uh, French phrases that are commonly used for game over. So I don't know what the landscape is. Like how uh-huh. often is one overused? Knowing that both options are good, it w- made me very comfortable. It's like, oh, great. I can, I'll be fine. But knowing which is the, the common one and uncommon one, it's very difficult to find that information mm-hmm. if you don't know the language or part of the culture. You don't know it fluently anyway. Um, now you can you can't meme in it. Yes. <laughs> now there's a couple of resources I did find uh, that can help. There's a great there's a spreadsheet that's called Polyglot, which is um, someone has been uh, uh, collecting uh, translations of common phrases, things like druid, cleric, like uh, oh. you know, like video game phrases in many different genres, not just menu terms yeah. or, or like video game phrases, but the but- phrases that would be used in many different genres. Yeah. Uh, you know, platform, enemy, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and it's in this huge spreadsheet. And so we'll link that in the show notes um, because that can be very useful if you, you know, have no money and you just need, to, you know, some confidence of, yeah. of how other people do it. That said, you, uh, how much do you trust those, you know, a lot of that is sourced and double-checked and that's, it's great, but it's a free uh, 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 resource that is hard to audit. So um, yeah. you still need to be a little careful. Um, with that sort of thing. Um, so the one other thing about I want to talk about in terms of like who you can help um, uh, translate yours is if you are working with a publisher, 
Um, one of the things you should do is before you sign that contract is you should talk about what their plans are for localization. Um, if they are going to, if they would like, because you know they're interested in selling in as many markets as possible, likely, or maybe they have expertise in certain markets, and so they may wish a game to be translated. But you should also know who's going to pay for it because um, they may have in-house translators. Um, they may uh, hire a service that they do on every game. They may expect you to handle it, or they may uh, prefer that you handle it. Right? That they, you know, your game best, you can handle it. It depends on how you're working with. It, but always make sure you have that conversation. Um, and you know, if it comes down to like they're like, oh, we don't have any money for it. You don't have any money for it. Uh, that's still having the conversation, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty important. So yeah. in, in in the case of Widget Satchel, um, we have a, a publisher in Japan, and so uh, it makes it a little easier. Uh, they uh, they yeah. do handle the, the the localization, and in the contract, it was stipulated that that's something that they would handle and pay for. And one of the things that I uh, negotiated with them, and they were very happy to to do this. Um, it wasn't as much of a of a request as I had initially thought. Is they agreed to license back the translation to me for other regions, which was very kind of them. So they'll be translating the game into Japanese, or they have already. And um, but when we sell the game in Canada, um, we can include the Japanese translation, um, and without uh, uh, and they don't they don't without at no cost to us, um, because that's the one thing you have to think about is copyright. Um, not mm. this is a little hairy. There's never been a ton of of case law on this. It's uh, the the case law that does exist is in novels. Is uh, are translations original works? Um, are they derivative? And if so, how, if they're derivative works, who owns what as part mm -hmm. of them? Right. Uh, my opinion generally is um, that if you wrote it, you have the copyright to it. Um, but if it's based on something else, then your copyright is limited by the rights you have to the original, right? But that doesn't mean that if you wrote the original, that you have rights to the derivation, right? So um, maybe that's... Oh, yeah. Okay. Did that, that make sense? sense? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. This is one... I've seen this a lot. I saw this all the time with fan films. Um, uh, like people making like Star Trek fan films would say like, uh, well, we can't profit on this. Like, uh, uh, you know, Star Trek owns it or whatever, Paramount or CBS, whoever at the time the conversation was happening. Um, but they don't actually own it. They don't own your fan work, right? Like just, be, you still yeah. own it. Like you wrote it, it's yours. They own, you are using, you know, either licensed or unlicensed use of their intellectual property, but they can't come and then sell your work, right? Like, and so... It's sort of a you know a, a technical distinction at a certain point because fan authors are not generally interested or worried about people selling their work, but um, but th this applies directly to translation when you think about this. And so yeah. I wanted to make sure that it was in our contract that um, uh, that we would be able to license the translation back for two reasons. One, uh, it's great to offer Japanese to Japanese Americans or you know a, a Japanese Dutch or whoever buys the game anywhere uh, and and wants to uh, uh, yeah. use the Japanese translation. Um, that's fantastic. The other thing that's really useful is that that way I didn't have to make multiple builds of the game. <laughs> so <laughs> the build that's going to be published in Japan by our publisher is going to be the same build that I publish uh, elsewhere. And that is just a case of my sanity, right? So uh, complexity and implementation is something to think about a lot for these sort of things. Um, okay, so we talked about who's going to get this done for you. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about uh, how uh, the implementation part that I think is relevant here is um, where does the text live? And so I think people are very familiar with spreadsheets for this, right? That's pretty common, and that's definitely what you got to do. A, a Google spreadsheet is best for this, um, or you know, Word Online or any uh, online system, mm -hmm. because um, you can more easily share, um, and uh, that's very useful. Um, but the second reason it's very useful is uh, that um, 
uh, for Google Translate anyway, and I think actually Word Online does this as well, is you can actually do uh, you can actually do translations in the spreadsheet, right? You can oh. like as as a as a, a as a function call, right? Um, so in the case of um, what we did when we when I started building the localization system is. I did uh, you know, Google Translate, and then I uh, put in the cell for the English cell, and it would give me an auto-translation, right? It would run Google Translate in my Google Sheet, so that's the benefit of vertical integration, I guess. Yeah. Um, now, this is obviously, you know, and you'll hear this a lot, you don't want to just Google Translate your text. It's not going to work, but mm-hmm. it is useful for testing things like layouts, right? Um, for when you're designing the visuals of, of your game and how text is going to appear, how much white space do I leave in this text box because there's going to have to put some German words in there, right? Oh, and yeah. So, Those are much longer. <laughs> yeah. So um, for a long time, we had all the translations in the game. They were just all probably wrong. <laughs> but they were very useful because then I could test out how, how it would all look because... A lot of times you'll see this in games that have that are that are designed for uh, their original language, and then everything else, the other languages are sort of crammed in there, kind of lazily or clumsily. Um, and you know that is better than nothing, right? Mm-hmm. But if you can design some uh, visually a, a, for something that works for all those different things, or at least works optimally for um, for what your you know local language is, but then also works well for other languages, mm-hmm. that is something you should really be thinking about. And it also determines a lot of things about how. Um, you know, how you build your systems, right? And and uh, it can influence a lot of the other creative decisions you make. Like, you know, is this, if this is going to be an on-screen text that's sort of like um, diegetic, so it's on a monitor in the game, right? Then like, how does that system, how does that system look to the player? Is it going to be, uh, you know, uh, and how is it going to look in different languages? Is it going to apply something, like if I have a sparse computer screen with just a line of text and it's meant to be kind of spooky, right? Big blank screen, small bits of text. But then when I translate it, it, it now there's now a line break in it. And suddenly it and suddenly it's a little bit different, right? It can be kind of technical, but if you're visually minded, it, it can really matter like how you, you know, sell the, the notion. Like and if you have um, you know, we have this in, in, in Widget Satchel where there's um uh, terminals that give you extra lore, little like oh, yeah. and and I have little pieces of text that are meant to be kind of like Wikipedia categories and stuff like that. And in some languages, there, that thing is not one word, it's four words. And so not only does it not fit anymore, but it's no longer like textual pepper, the way it was designed to be visually, right? I didn't, I didn't include those things necessarily to be legible or understandable because it's this fictional interface. I meant it to be visual. That was what it was, that's what the, the text was doing, a graphic design job. And in other languages, it's not doing that job anymore. And so, you have so to think, then what did you do? Did you add add something visual to to help it so that it's like in bold, so you can see the categories? So, in for Spanish, um, I actually um, I had our translator change what those things were okay. because the meaning was less important than the visual. So, I went back and forth uh, about like, would this word work okay? Would this word still make sense more or less? Uh, and because uh, he was not necessarily as invested in the meaning as I was. As yeah. long as it sort of like meant, as long as it was like not ridiculous, and I got the okay that he thought it was okay, then when he had this sort of list of alternatives, then that worked well as pepper. So sometimes when you translate, you don't actually translate. You're translating it's in, by some other metric. Yeah, right? you're not translating literally. You're translating like, I want to be like figuratively, but that's not the right <laughs> word either. Yeah. You're, you're translating the, the overall meaning, but so that it, fits the the style and the 
I guess context so. in the context. Yeah. More. We talk about this a lot when we talk about game design. We talk yeah. about like, you don't want to build a system that is like, oh, it's just, it's great when you uh, hit the other guy and he loses a lot of points of damage. Like, that's not a great way to describe a system. You want to say, I need to hit, you know, hit the enemy and it's going to feel powerful, right? Mm-hmm. And so the actual, literally what happens is secondary to the feeling you want to provide. Yeah, so you're translating for feeling. Yeah, absolutely right. More than you are translating for literal words. Yeah. Um. I was going to ask you about how you use the the Google spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. So you started out using it just to get a feeling for how long each language would end up lo- looking yeah. just with Google Translate. And then did you start putting actual translations into that Google spreadsheet? Yeah. And did you have your, your um, translators use the Google spreadsheet or did you have them use some other medium? So this is a really good question because it talks to efficiency in workflow. And this is something I'm obsessed with. It's like as few steps as possible, as as little friction as you can, yeah. so you can do more work. Yeah, and I'm wondering about it because I know that if you change your original, like if you if you haven't decided between two or you decide to revise, yeah. suddenly your you've revision you've revised the English and And everything else. And now your your German or your your Spanish is still for the old sentence. Yeah. So in the case of uh, the the temporary translations, the Google Translate would n- would not accept. It doesn't accept English text. That you can you can you can, but uh, you give it a cell. So when I would change the English, when I was still writing a lot of the copy, this was great because I got to test a lot of these things before the the text was finished. And uh-huh. when I changed the English ones, all the other ones would change automatically. They would just rerun the Google Translate on them. So I could continually, and this was all before anybody who knew these languages got a look at it, right? Uh-huh. And I think that's just for embarrassment reasons, if nothing else, right? Is, is like, you know, just keep it out of people's, away from people's vision until you're sort of ready for it. But, you know, that's, you can, you know, your speed may vary. Um, but once it was ready for an actual translator, um, then I just cleared that whole row because I'd done the work of like testing the layouts. So I no longer needed those translations in the game at all. And um, so then I just cleared those, those, those columns and then they were ready for the translator. So this is how I worked with each person. So um, I, I'm big on iteration and version control, um, not just the literal Git version control, but actually, you know, any method of keeping track of stuff. And when you're working yeah. with a Google spreadsheet that, you know, it does auto save and you can go back to old versions. But when it's a huge document, that's, that's kind of not a great solution. Yes. Um, and so um, one of the things... The originally what I had done is I had a Excel spreadsheet, a local uh, uh, file that I would iterate version numbers, and that was my canonical document. Then I would uh-huh. then I would paste that into the um, the spreadsheet, and then that would became the sort of ephemeral document that the game would reference. It would uh, so uh, brief on implementation. My at edit time, it would pull from the internet the copy and then put it into game objects. It didn't use it live. I don't generally recommend that um, uh, because you don't want to rely on Google services for one. Um, but also you don't need to rely on any cloud service for what is just text. It's probably not going to change once the game is out. Anyways, um, but I would put it in there. and But then that became already too, too many steps. So I needed to work towards getting the, that Google sheet being the canonical document. And so one of the things doing that is if I give seven people access to this document and it's the canonical document, a stray deletion of a cell I'm not going to look at for three months 
can, yeah. you know, can kind of can ruin the ruin the process. And so, um, you know, use protected ranges. So this is something that you can do in any spreadsheet software where you can uh, select a group of, of of cells and lock them individually. And mm-hmm. so I did that for all the English ones and all the, the spreadsheet also included a lot of other metadata for, for objects. So I made sure all that was locked. And then the individual columns, I granted access only to the mm-hmm. user who needed it. Only right? to the, the Spanish column, only to the Spanish translator. The- That's right. So that you can still gotcha. copy, but you can only edit those things. And so basically I trusted them to maintain the canonical document for themselves. And so when they made changes... I lost access to the, I mean, I could get it from the the Google Sheet history, but not in a way that was comfortable to me. Uh, So I felt like I lost access to the version history of their work. But ultimately, that ended up being worth it for this sort of ease of workflow. Um, Instead of them sending like version one, and then I would keep that on my hard drive, and they'd send me version two, and then I'd keep that. And then if I, you know, we said, hey, you know, you changed this a while back. We talk about that. Like, you sort of lose those opportunities a little bit. Um, uh-huh. Not completely, but I, you know, I do worry about that sometimes. And I'm a, I'm a data hoarder. So that makes, I don't you always want to do that. Martha's smiling. Is that yeah. because you know he's a data hoarder or because you're a data hoarder too? Um, no, I just have heard stories of moving your cloud storage to a different cloud storage and yeah. how long that was taking. <laughs> very, very long time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so, you know, ultimately, uh, um, it, the workflow mattered better and in truthfully, like I'm not going to be able to correctly evaluate this version of the Spanish text versus that version of the Japanese text, uh, you know, versus the Italian text. Like I don't, uh, so it felt yeah. like I'm happy to be a little bit ignorant of yeah. what those things used to be. Um, and, and dealing with things on e- either through email or Slack or on the communication, like when questions arise, right, uh, with the translator. So um, I, tr- I treated that as a canonical document, uh, ultimately. Yeah, and it worked out really well. Um, so the last thing about Google Translate is that there is a lot of, I've sort of said it's sort of taken as read, that you don't want to Google Translate your text. That's, that's insulting, and it's not going to be good, and people are going to look at it and be like, oh, it's gross. And that is true. Um, but there's a great example I found. I, w- I want to find this Reddit post. I couldn't find it for the show notes, but I'll, maybe by the time this is out, you'll have it. If you don't, it's my fault. I couldn't find it yet. But this is a great comment where someone was asking about these questions, like, how do I find extra people to do this, blah, blah, blah. And somebody replied saying, um, like, you know, I-, I can't really help you with your question on, like, you know, Korean or whatever you're looking for. But, like, I'm Dutch. And, like, how did you get uh, this really great Dutch translation uh, that you have already um, I just wanted to thank you for that because no one ever does a good one. They're all terrible. And the person replies that I just use Google Translate. <laughs> and so that's a that's an anecdote. But it is telling that like, one, these are pretty good services. And if you have no money, it is better than nothing. And I, I don't want to get people comfortable with the idea of auto-translating their game. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have a really hard time condemning it. Because it opens up a lot of markets. It's about accessibility, right? So there's two elements. Like we as independent uh, artists, we want to make sure people get paid, that, that, there's, you know, that their, uh, their work opportunities are not taken, and that things are done professionally, efficiently, and at a high quality. At the same time, I'm, I also want to, if you are translating to two languages and it costs you 3000 per language, and, and you want people all over the world to play your game, a lot of them will be able to play it in English generally. That's generally true. But like, is it such a crime to have a bad translation? Mm-hmm. Well, like, 
it can become iconic. Like the well, like <laughs> if you're aiming for that, that's totally true. All your base belong to us. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but like you're right. Like that game, people who only speak English would not have been able to play if it was originally in Japanese. Like in yeah. yep. originally in Japanese. Like that bad translation actually was enough to make people play the game, and now everyone knows that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> or like most people, a yeah. lot of people, many people. <laughs> 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 So don't admit it in public, but like you have permission from me yeah. <laughs> to Google Translate your game. Like mm -hmm. uh, the, you, the people who are mad at you can address their letters to me um, because <laughs> I, like I, I'm such a perfectionist that it's not something I would be very comfortable with doing. But, um, but I, sometimes I have to sort of challenge myself. It's like, I don't know, what would be so bad about, about it? Like uh -huh. if I'm thinking of uh, something that's translated into English that I recognize is not great. Like maybe I don't understand it because it's not, the meaning isn't clear or maybe I get the meaning, but it's just stupidly phrased. Like that's still better than not having access to that game. Yeah. And so I, I have still to still know. Yeah. So I think of myself, I, I role play as someone in another uh, 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 region thinking the same thing. They're as smart as I am. They know they'll see a bad translation. They'll get it. They'll know that you didn't do a great job, but they'll appreciate its existence. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, you might you might get letters. <laughs> well, you might get letters. Well, I might Mark. get letters. That's right. Yeah, yeah. This this brings me to the segment I call. Let me tell you about a treat I read. <laughs> yeah, which was somebody was complaining about an Australian video game that was set in the U.S. and they did not localize it because obviously they know English already. Yeah. But um, because it was set like in the New York area, they used all sorts of of Australian English words meaning they called all their elevators lifts and mm -hmm. then they like made all sorts of assumptions about like the people who lived around New York. And so like, they were all like, Oh, they won't know what gnocchi is, which is, you know, like a very, very, you know, Italian thing. <laughs> and they were like, that area is just filled with Italians. Everybody knows what gnocchi is. And so it was really, it was really funny to hear this complaint that it's not a localization um, issue with, um, with language being translated is an issue with language and how it's used locally. So like, I'm yeah. just thinking about how, how like when you're translating it to French, you're translating it to French, French, Fran France, French, <laughs> French, 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 uh French, -huh. and not, um, like, Quebecois. Quebecois. <laughs> and like Quebec. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So Latin so American uh, Spanish is different, different from uh, Spanish from Spain. Spain. Brazilian Portuguese is quite different from Portuguese Portuguese. I don't know. And I even, only know two words in that. <laughs> <laughs> and even like, even with between different countries and regions in Latin America, like mm -hmm. Spanish is different. Oh, like, yeah, my, sure. my Spanish teacher in high school is from Bolivia and he talked totally different from the other Spanish teachers who were from other places. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just language, it's culture that you, mm -hmm. that you were localizing for. And like that yeah. Australian example is a perfect way to explain Wait, that. At work, we do a game day on Thursdays and some, one of the people got a game at, Goodwill and brought it in and was um, Family Feud, except it was the Australian version of Family Feud. Uh -huh. And like, oh. yeah, we had real problems with things because <laughs> it was like, we're like Survey garden, says. yeah, garden, flowers, etc. And they're like, no, the garden is a backyard. Yeah. Like, So, yeah. Yeah, so you want to think about that and you, you do need to sort of give yourself over to the fact that you don't understand certain things. And so mm -hmm. when you're the author of a work, it can be very difficult to to trust somebody to change a meaning or a phrase. 
but also to just like understand that your your intent will be lost like no matter how good the translation is the translator if they're good they are going to adopt and express their intent which will be based and hopefully they have trust in you and understanding of your work based on what they know about your intent but your intent will be lost and you have to be okay with that i think and that's something that that I thought I would have a lot of problems with, but the ignorance of it is useful because you don't know how lost it is. You just know it's going to be lost. And so it's, it is actually, it, it's not as hard as other kinds of letting go uh, if you're a control freak. Because uh, um, you don't know what you've let go of. Yeah, you, once you get comfortable with the idea that like, you know what, this pun will never work in Portuguese. It just will never, no. ever work. No. Then once you've done that, then you just make sure that the person who's doing the hard work of like uh, translating your nonsense, like has either something to replace it or can mitigate the damage. Um, one of the things we have in the game is we have a joke about uh, a, data, a database error. So um, you, if you're on the internet, you will, uh, and you, a, a page loads bad, sometimes even a lay person will see SQL database error, right? And Martha, you, you've done a lot of SQL work, so you know, you've seen that more than most. Yes, and getting people who aren't programmers to tell you the exact thing that the thing says on the screen so you can solve the problem is very frustrating. Right. <laughs> yeah. They're like, I don't know what this means, so I don't know all the details that I need to tell you. Anyway, that's neither that, here nor there. That's why you <laughs> screenshot it. <laughs> so we, in, in, in Widget Satchel, when you, uh, at the very beginning of the game, you encounter your first fabricator where you can give it widgets and, and get out uh, 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 objects. And... W- in order to tutorialize it, we only let you choose one of them. The other ones are all out of order. And the little flavor text says JQL database error. And the idea is it's the junk database, right? It, it's, <laughs> so that it's just, it's a play on SQL, but it requ- it's a J, it's for junk, right? And so um, translating, translating the word junk, now it's now a different initialism. But then does that necessarily mean the same thing? Does it work in the same way? Because SQL in other languages is not translated. It's still SQL everywhere else. So ultimately we decided to leave it alone. It's going to be JQL everywhere, which means it's going to be a much harder reference for people to get because it's already a pretty hard reference to get. Oh, it's, yeah. it's pretty like, I'm, I it's don't not, get it. It's not an on the nose joke, right? It's, it's hard. It's not, it's not meant to be funny unless you stare at it for five minutes. Like it does its job in English, but mm-hmm. it doesn't do that job in other languages. And I had to be, I had to decide like, Rather than come up with a solution for this, I just gave it up. Like it, it, it doesn't break it. It just means that I, some of my meaning is lost, and that's the case. You know, that's how it goes. And so the last thing I'll say uh, in this topic that's gone on way too long already, um, but that's evidence of how like fraught it is. Um, is um, how do you prevent as much of that loss as possible, and how do you communicate with the people you're working with? in a way that's efficient. And the way you do this is with tons and tons of notes. And what this means is that uh, it, with Google uh, uh, Sheets or with any other spreadsheet program, you can do comments and you can leave uh, notes that explains. And this is where you do the hard work of explaining what uh, you know Auntie's grav sled is all about. Because even if you know it's not going to work in another language, you need to explain what you meant in English. To someone who may not be a native English speaker, right? Mm-hmm. Like the English may be their, you know, f- the, their fluent second language. But if you're trying to explain, this is a reference to a Thomas Paine quote, like, you know, you need to full, like 
in exhaustive detail. You need to explain every, and the thing is, is you won't know this information until you sit down and try to figure it out. Like, oh, yeah. you will, you'll like, oh, this all makes sense. It's all pretty obvious. And you're like, no, wait a minute. That actually relies on a piece of understanding that is not important to get the main meaning, but mm. there's subtext that I'm also trying to imply. And like, you will surprise yourself to like how much is loaded in the, the text that you write. And, um, exhaustively explaining all of that stuff is really, really interesting. Um, it's also in a way that you, those, those descriptions can't be cute. <laughs> they have to be very factual. They have to make a lot of sense. They also have to be refer, be able, you can refer back to them. So that to be short and simple as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but you should have as much of that as possible. Like if, I can't see that being a bullet point thing. <laughs> So you can find things within your big, big block of text about what this is referencing. Yeah. So, you know, if you have uh, our widget satchel has about uh, 3,500 words. It's not a lot. Um, it's maybe a little more than a lot of indie games, but it's nowhere. It's not RPG level even remotely. Oh, no. Um, and I spent probably two weeks writing notes for that text. Um, and I feel like I only did about three, two thirds of what was probably you know, to be a complete explanation of all of the the text in there. Um, so maybe that's a reflection of my obsessiveness, but um, you should be really thinking about what every word means and, and that it's the gamer can understand it, but the person translating needs to really, really understand it. They need to be able to know which bin to go to, to get their parts for their, to make their Ikea table. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, my topic is navigation, and one of those places you have to navigate is Ikea. Um, this topic came out of, hey, Dale, do you want to be on our show? And what do you want to talk about? And the answer was Ikea. <laughs> because there is this thing where video games are frequently uh, compared to Ikea. Um, there are several ways where Ikea is like a video game, and like mostly it has to do with the layout of the store because... Um, if you haven't been to an Ikea, <laughs> Ikea's are two levels, and on the top level, there is a showroom, which is basically, you know, it shows you all the furniture, and they have all the living room setups, and then they show you all the all the different sofas you could get. It's the together. river of shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there is a slight reference to, to some DS9 for you. Um, and and. It's not a straight path. Like if you were in a Target or a Walmart or a grocery store, it's designed to take you around in like a maze-like path without having any dead ends. Because if you had a dead end in Ikea, that area wouldn't get visited by any shoppers and you wouldn't sell anything in there. So the same thing you're doing when you're designing a video game is your dead ends are short and they're just secret areas where you're probably going to get some really great prize. Um, and I, there are some places in Ikea that are like little, like little corners that will have like a funny prop or a message written on the wall for children or something. Like oh, little, really? There's not a lot of them, but like occasionally, they, and it is very video gamey in uh-huh. the sense that like it's off the beaten path just enough. It's not hidden so deeply you'll never find it, mm-hmm. but it's just there like to notice if you notice, mm-hmm. right? Very video gamey. Yeah. And so the point of it is to be like, there's an obvious path. There are shortcuts that you can discover. And I'm always taking those shortcuts because <laughs> I want to get in and out <laughs> if I know what I'm looking for. If I'm not shopping for a sofa, I'm not shopping for a sofa. You know, like there's no reason to look for the sofa. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so you feel rewarded when you find those shortcuts, which are just a little hidden, but not too hidden. There's an obvious path to go around and you're not going to get super lost because you don't want your video game player to get super lost in your maze because they're going to stop playing your video game and it's not fun. So that, that's the, the, the thought behind why video game level design is like Ikea. And then on the bottom floor, it's similar, but with all the little things that you can buy, like your, your spoons and your dishes and your towels and your towel racks and your, your bins for holding everything you could possibly imagine and your lamps. And then the other half is just warehouse where you pick out the furniture parts to build your own furniture. So then going on from there, and we'll link this in the show notes, is then they also like kind of compare Ikea being like a video game because you have to build your own furniture and it has to be the right amount of difficult because if you make (laughs) really difficult furniture, like if you went to Ikea and you just got boards and you had to drill holes and you had to screw in nails and you had to like actually hammer, hammer, hammer. And it wasn't like the easy hammering you get to do. Um, nobody would go to Ikea cause that's just called, you know, woodworking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's called woodworking. <laughs> and that, that's a different hobby. <laughs> but if it, if it's, you know, if it's too easy, then you don't get that sense of accomplishment. It's creating the same type of balance that you want to create in your video game where it's it's not too difficult that nobody wants to play your video game, but it's not so easy that you don't feel like you haven't accomplished anything. Yeah. They call it like creating that state of flow, which makes like that grind, even though it's kind of a grind, enjoyable. It is funny because like the reason Ikea, you have to build IKEA furniture is not to give you in a sense of accomplishment. It's not the same motivation as video game. Um, it's for mm-hmm. flat packing and efficient, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's all those reasons that are totally different. But I know that when I build it, I enjoy building an Ikea bookshelf. Like, even though if I just bought one, it would be a lot easier for the purpose I was buying it for. But it's like Legos. But you still enjoy yourself, yeah. right? And and because they make sure it's not too difficult, mm-hmm. right? Make sure it's not too difficult. And then they have. You still feel like you built something. (laughs) Yeah. I made that. (laughs) I'm providing for my family. Yeah. And then they have this set of directions that has the minimal amount of words. It's all symbols. They don't have to translate too much. But they have their proper names for all of their furniture. Mm -hmm. That's all funny sounding to people who don't speak Swedish. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that that was because one of the one of the IKEA guys, I don't know if it was like the K or the E or the I, was dyslexic. And so he had trouble like giving them just like regular old part numbers. And so they gave them they gave them names. And one of the things that that does is is it it makes people more attached to their moms, <laughs> <laughs> which, I, which I am attached to, which is why we're not getting rid of our moms. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> um, but you'll also notice like in AAA video games, they will name their like swords and their fancy guns and their whatevers because like you, you went out of your way to find this gun and then you, then it has a fancy name and then you, you know what its name is and, it becomes a thing. It becomes a thing and not just a... That's big in Destiny, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? Like all the, all the swords and guns and everything and pieces of armor all have names. Mm-hmm. 
and it's very fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some good ones, but I can't right now. <laughs> and they're not like descriptive names. Uh, they're not like Saturn V rocket. They're they're all like poetic proper names, right? Yeah, like the like some of them are descriptive. Like mm-hmm. like the sunshot gun uh-huh. is very it's all fire and looks like explosions and things like that. Yeah, looks like the sun. Um, um, but then you have like like Ariana's vow or like they're named after people like that yeah. or oh. the truth <laughs> oh, or <laughs> oh, I, I thorn. Think, I think somebody's like used this in their video game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like a, a weapon called the truth is like it is embedded with, is in, embedded with meaning just but that by virtue of its name alone, like it doesn't actually have to be that special of a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes you more attached to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing that that I hear is like a video game is it shows you how to use the store. You look upstairs and then it has little directions about where to find the parts down in the warehouse. And so it shows you, you know, you start out upstairs, it shows you where to find things, then you go get them. Same thing you're doing with your video game, whether you're doing it like... Fetch quest, right? What? It's a fetch quest. It is a fetch quest. <laughs> but whether you're doing it in a in a very formal like tutorial or you're doing it in in a um, more informal thing like um, that first level of Mario where you, you fall off that first platform and onto a Goomba's head and it shows you, hey, you can kill a Goomba by jumping on its head or like Super Meat Boy where you can't get past that first wall without wall jumping it up it to show you you can wall jump um but same kind of thing it has a yeah. built-in tutorial it has a built-in tutorial and then uh, ikea always makes it very obvious where you go next and they they literally have like arrows on the ground to show you like if you come back from looking at a couch back to like the main the main river which direction that river is flowing mm-hmm. with a big old arrow on the ground so you don't forget which way you are going and same thing with video games when you're in 3D video game, it's very easy to get turned around. Like, think about watching people who are playing those 3D, like those 3D video games, like point of view video games for the first time, where they just like turn around in a circle and a circle and a circle. Um, think about that. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> um, so like, I always, I always don't get turned around because either like whatever's behind you like there's no enemies and like they're all shooting you from one direction so it's very clear where you like you have been and versus where you're going or else you've picked up all the gold coins (laughs) from where you have been and all the gold coins are showing you where you haven't been yet so like i always like to say like your your player like assume they're really dumb like (laughs) And give them lots and lots and lots and lots of clues about where you want them to go. Um, when I play video games and Mark's sitting on the couch next to me watching me and I don't know where to go. And I'll be like, where I'm going? And then I like, I hop around and do lots of stuff. Mark's always like, well, wh- where is the game designed t- to show you where to go? And where does the game designer want you to go? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I may be the smartest person he knows. But I'm still real dumb <laughs> when it comes to video games. So well, that happens a lot in open world games, yeah. where open world games tend to rely on like HUDs to tell you go this way, like li- like just making it very literal. Mm-hmm. Because the, it, in the open world itself is designed for you to go anywhere, so you lose a little bit of that sort of natural navigation you get from um, more linear type games where 
like uh, suddenly the the room gets a little wider. Okay, well then this is an area I can stick around in for a little while. And like, oh, there's only there's two exits. Okay, so those are the two. You know what I mean? Like it more natural direction, or mm-hmm. like, oh, that's the light is down that hallway and it's dark down that hallway. The light is should be the, is forward, right? All those little clues mm-hmm. in open world games you don't have that as much. So when you're yeah. like spinning around in The Witcher. It's not totally your fault. It's just endemic to the, the, yeah. the format. Yeah, and it's also endemic to the fact that you just don't know how far you turn because in real life, you know, like, you know your body and you know how far you're turning around. Yeah. And it's easy to get lost with that. Did I turn, you know, 90 degrees or did I turn 180 degrees? It's very, they feel the same. That's interesting. I didn't really consider that, but yeah, you there's probably an assumption that you still have that sense, but you absolutely don't have that sense. No. You need to rely on other things to give you that information. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so like when I'm playing the Witcher, there's always that like mini map with that little like dotted line to tell you where to go. I was watching a video this morning of this guy who's like, I hate that because it tells you exactly where to go. And I'm like, yeah, it's nice. Cause it tells you exactly where to go. But <laughs> But, like, I just ignore it most of the time. Like, I mm-hmm. do whatever I want or else I, like, I drop a pin and then it tells you which direction relative to yourself that pin is in. And then I'll just, like, head that general direction. So, like, I have that point of reference of, like, when I'm, like, when I'm following a path and it goes or, like, when I hit, like, a ridge and I can't go that way, I know where I'm turning back to. But But where I'll go in circles a lot is... Either I'm in a city where I don't know like how far I've turned or where I hit like something where I just can't like it's just a place where you can't pass where like I'm like I'm going to go straight there and I'm going to ignore the path and or whatever happens. I'm going to go straight there and I'll just like walk through this forest and like you know whatever whatever I come across will be fine and then I'll hit a thing where it's just like mountains that are impassable and you can't like walk up them and you just slide right down and then you're like oh now I'm stuck. <laughs> Breath of the Wild had this a lot where you 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 knew where to go next, but you it was either through uh, uh area you'd never been through before or um um or it had been like something you hadn't been to in a while and you sort of forgot the path or a, where you'd been to the long way around and you're like I want to find a faster way to get here. Mm-hmm. So you just start going directly in that direction. And the map is useful to give you a sort of a hint as to what to expect. Um, and the environment has a lot of clues, but like eventually you'll be like, oh, this was absolutely the wrong way to go. I didn't notice this giant ravine here that I can't, you know, traverse or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it is interesting how it can be like the world can give you enough hints and enough freedom because like you're saying about Ikea, like those Ikea instructions, you feel like accomplishment, uh, some accomplishment because there's just a little bit of problem solving, just a little bit. But like it's easy enough for anyone to do. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a successful product. But when you're given like take this road exactly, turn left exactly here, like then it's not you're just following a, a, a rote checklist. There's no sense of problem solving or accomplishment. Whereas if you are just traipsing straight through the forest, like that yeah. can, that can feel kind of like a fun way to follow directions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can, I know where where my destination is. I'm yeah. just gonna go through the forest. But then suddenly you hit. A, a unexpected difficulty and you lose that flow of like yeah. the sort of illusion of solving problems. Yep. And now I have to walk around some mountains. Yeah. Yep. Shortcuts make delays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they're funner. <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of what I'm 
hearing is like that for different players, they'd appreciate different ways to show their navigation. Like some people would really like just the line on the ground to show them exactly where to go. But sometimes it's fun to just navigate. So like giving your players choices yeah. and how to yeah. mark so, navigation. Because sometimes I'll follow that line because I really want to like go there and get there like the quickest way. And sometimes I'll just like see that line and ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and like like navigating by map is actually like really difficult in Witcher because just because the size of the map on your screen is so tiny and you can't see much ahead of you unless you open up the full map. Yeah, like in Borderlands, the first Borderlands, they had you could only see the map if you opened up the menu and otherwise they just had like a compass with different dots on it to and when you turned the direction of the thing that you were tracking or the enemies or whatever, the dot would move to be in front of you on the little line, um, which like was a great way to make that a really small part of the HUD. So you had more room to do stuff, but it was incredibly difficult to know exactly where you're supposed to go. Like you didn't know about the, the things in front of you that would block your path. So there's a lot of like going back and forth or like, Oh no. Um, and then in Borderlands 2 and et cetera onward, they have the do the mini map thing. Um, but it's still helpful to open the map so that you have more context. In Minecraft, you carry around your map and I think you can like put it up big, but mostly you just have to look at it and it has to be like an equipped item that you're carrying, which is very frustrating because you can't <laughs> like, then you don't have your sword. So if someone oh, comes geez. up on you, then you have to switch items. And you're like, let me fight you with this map. Yes. Oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> so in that case, like having, like, I really wish that game would have a mini map in the, in the corner because I, I really, really like maps. I like those maps in the corner. Ooh, maps. Ooh, ooh maps. <laughs> I taught this little kid class, theater class one time. And yeah. there was this little girl who, um, I couldn't get her to like really engage in very much of the stuff that we were doing, but yeah. I, we were talking about something and I brought out like a Atlas and was talking about like where the, the thing was that we were talking about. And she was like, Ooh, maps. And like for the rest of the day, it was just like looking at this Atlas. And it was Aww. Great. <laughs> That's awesome. That translation, that, that transitions into, to my next thing, which was real world maps. Sometimes when you're a game developer, you uh -huh. want to travel to actual places. <laughs> In the real world. <laughs> In the real world for conferences and stuff. Um, and so sometimes you have to go and travel through things like airports, which is my specialty because I travel for work sometimes. <laughs> um, and so one of the things I want to talk about is, number one, airports do a really good job with signage that is not language specific mm -hmm. because they're, they're catering to an audience that's traveling and they're most like, and a portion of that is traveling internationally so they don't necessarily speak English. So the, you'll see them use a lot of symbols and they'll, you'll see them over sign everything. And so mm -hmm. that's just kind of good advice that you can translate is, is even though you're not using like exactly baggage claim is this way in your <laughs> video game. Although if you are putting a, an airport in your video game, expect to see, put in lots of baggage claim signs because people are always doing that. <laughs> but like, I also want to mention that like people are nervous when they're flying. And if you're one of those nervous people, 
just remember that there are signs all the time and you just have to remember to like look for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and next time you're at an airport, notice how many signs there are. Oh, there. Because yeah. you, don't, you don't think there's a lot, but there's so many. It's, so many. My, like my family, my, my, my grandparents used to host trips to Poland. Um, and like my grandparents did it and they used to host trips with all these, all these elderly people. And like my mom used to say about this, like we'd meet and go to the airport together and then like give people directions through the airport. Because even though it's easy to navigate an airport because there's so many signs, People love being told where to go because then they don't have to think at all. And so sometimes that's really funny. And I think about that and how much people just love being told what to do because it takes that little little bit of cognitive overload off their minds because mm-hmm. they're they're busy worried about like, did I pack my my underwear and my phone charger and all that stuff? That's what they're thinking about instead of like, where do I have to go? And so like if you're a person who's traveling, Remember that there's always signs to tell you where to go once you get to the airport so you can continue thinking about where if you packed your underwear. And secondly, if you didn't pack your underwear, that's cool because wherever you're going, there's going to be a store that sells underwear. <laughs> bonus tip. <laughs> yeah, bonus tip. <laughs> you know, thinking about that in terms of game design, like the, the design of an airport is you're not supposed to be lost. It's supposed to, and it's supposed to give you a, a, a feeling of total comfort, right? So you don't yeah. have that that cognitive load of like, of like, Oh, is it left or right? And like, Oh, where's the sign? You know, it, that's mm-hmm. why there's so many of them. Yep. So when you're designing your game and you're thinking about how to navigate people through levels, think about, do you want it to be completely carefree? Like, like an airport yeah. or do you want it to feel like a little confusing and like, and calibrating that in terms of like, to Oh, the, this to, section of the game is not meant to be tense. This is the section where you pick up some bonus items and move to the next thing. Yeah. That's where you might want to either make your design simple so it doesn't require so much mm-hmm. signage or, or, or uh, deduction. Yeah. Where, where it, it's light and you can see things and it's open and you know what's going to happen mm-hmm. versus like every option is dark and you can't see down that, that, that hallway. Yeah. But then there's times definitely when you want to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think we always talk about like, make sure the player is easy to understand. It's like, yes, but remember, part of your design is to provide a challenge. Yes. And some of that can, and this can be a lever you can pull, right? Yep. But if you're dining airports, don't pull that lever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll get in my, in my, my list of bad airports. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Dale. Yeah. Uh, Super nice to have you. And listeners should know that all the interesting tweets, we've said it at the end of every episode lately, but like... Yeah, you guys should probably stop saying that. <laughs> no, but it's like, it's been really, really good yeah. to have you more involved in the show. Um, uh, yeah, I have a good time reading people's tweets and then retweeting them and sometimes retweeting them with comment and only occasionally making my own tweets. <laughs> I mean, that's how Twitter works, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. Somebody tell me if I'm wrong. You can tweet it. Tweet at Nice Games Club because I will read it. <laughs> be like, you're not creating content. <laughs> that's not how Twitter works. And I'll be like, I'm pretty sure this is how Twitter works. <laughs> okay, well, that's our show. If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club in your favorite podcast app and be sure to give it a good review if you liked it or are nice like us. We really need to know you're out there, so leave us a review and tell all your friends too. Go tell them right now, uh, especially if they're about to travel. 
because we have got some really great travel tips in this episode. Um, we also want to hear directly from you. So follow us on Twitter where Dale posts cool stuff. Um, and that's at Nice Games uh, uh, Club. Dale and reposts nice stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you can email us at contact at nicegames.club. Lastly, you can find more about the show, Your Nice Toasts, as well as get all the links and show notes from this and other episodes at nicegames.club. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. Um, and then, um, I also just wrote a whole bunch of travel tips because you guys let me talk about stuff. Um, so I want to point out that like the best thing for travelers ever is Google maps. Mm -hmm. Um, because if you're going someplace that where it's not obvious, which airport you should be flying into Google maps can find you the right airport because often if it's a big city, um, or you're going like just outside a big city, there's more than one airport you can be flying into. So for example, even if you're going to GDC and you're flying to San Francisco, San Francisco SFO is not the only airport you could be flying into. So um, think about alternate airports you could be flying into. There's smaller airports all over this country, and usually the ticket prices are just a little bit um, higher for those smaller airports, the regional airports. But um, if you're renting a car, those rental car prices are a lot lower than like than they are at the big airports. For example, mm-hmm. I was flying. Um, I was I had a thing that I was going to outside Philadelphia, and I I flew into like the Lehigh Valley Regional Airport, and it ended up being less expensive to fly there and rent a car because the rental car prices were less expensive than to fly into Philly, and it's a lot faster to get through the lines and navigate the airports. For those really small airports than it is to like in Philly just because of traffic and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so think about that. Um, and then like the really great feature about Google Maps is that you can, on the desktop version, you can see how long your trip will take if you set the time of day because that will give you how much it ta- how long it will take to you during rush hour. And that's always great when you're deciding what time you're going to need to leave your hotel. So to get to that talk that you want to see or see that game demo that you. (laughs) Yeah. Which is clearly what I'm always doing when I'm traveling for work in (laughs) the unrelated industry that I actually work in. Um, um, So, so I always find that really, really helpful when I'm traveling is to do that beforehand rather than just Google maps it the night before at like 9 PM and be like, Oh, this will be easy. It only takes 15 minutes to be surprised when it takes 45 minutes and miss half my talk. Um, other things that are helpful is always remember that if you are younger, renting a car can be really expensive or they won't rent to you at all if you're under 25, which is like a huge bummer because you thought once you turn 21, you you could do everything. The whole world is open to you now. Yes. <laughs> Not quite. Not quite. Um, and then... Um, If you're going to take a Lyft or an Uber, there is usually a designated pickup place and it is signed by (laughs) app-based ride services. 
Yeah, that is about settled now, right? Yeah. For a long time, there was a couple of years where it was like, you just go to where taxis were or whatever, or you went or, to the pickup. Or, or you go where regular people got picked up. But right, now and airports started locking down on that. Now the apps themselves know you're at the airport and then they give you instructions for that airport like mm-hmm. um, because everyone was a little bit different, but they're starting to coalesce now. Yep, and they're starting to put actual like signage in the airports for yeah. that, whether it's the, the permanent overhead ones or they're like the stand signs yeah um so that's helpful to know and then uh this is my my advice on hotels which is always pick a hotel that has a free breakfast because it saves you it saves you time in the morning because you don't have to think about where you're eating breakfast if you like have to like cross the street and stand in line at a starbucks or find a mcdonald's or something like that and if their breakfast if your hotel serves breakfast it's usually really expensive and you're like, why am I uh, paying anything from like 11 to $30 for this breakfast? Mm -hmm. So, and those like waffle machines, they're legit good. (laughs) It's not that much of a compromise (laughs) and you only ever find them at free hotel breakfasts. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're like, then you go to Perkins or whatever and you're like, why is this Belgian waffle $8? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, I, we stayed in a hotel that you recommended to stale in uh, St. Louis when we went to see the um, the League of Legends championship. And that was pretty cool to have, you know, free, like, snacks in the afternoon and stuff like that. Um, can I say its name and then will they sponsor us? No, they won't. <laughs> I love them, though. <laughs> All right. Uh, unpaid for endorsement, I guess. Okay. The Drury Inn is my favorite place to stay because they have consistently like the best breakfasts and you can have diet Pepsi in the morning with your breakfast. And so then, like, you know, there's pluses and minuses is what you're saying. Um, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then at nighttime they have snacks and diet Pepsi in the nighttime too. <laughs> it's great. Well, uh, so there you have it. Tips for <laughs> both navigating in your game and navigating when you're going places in the real meat space world. Thank you, Dale. <laughs> I believe that I believe there's a thing for that. It's IRL. <laughs> What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.